Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 59 being recorded on Thursday, November 17th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome Jason and Scott Show listeners. Before we dig into tonight's topic, which is a deep dive on Singles Day, I want to take a second and reflect and acknowledge that this is our official one-year anniversary. Happy anniversary, Jason. Happy anniversary, Scott. I, I was excited to talk about Singles Day, but I don't feel like I can fully represent it because I, I, I have you in my life. Yeah, yeah. We're we're no longer a podcast single. Um, don't tell our wives. We pushed out uh, – so just in case you forgot, we pushed out our first podcast on November 12th. So uh, even though we're kind of five days late celebrating, but that's just kind of how the calendar worked. Uh, and that podcast started with 90 downloads, and it was also a Singles Day recap. So uh, we are, are definitely kind of lapping the e-commerce calendar here. Uh, but like a little snowball, we've gathered a lot of steam over the last year. And now we have about 2,000 downloads per episode. And I checked before the show, and we just crossed over 75,000 total listens for the show. So uh, to say this has exceeded, uh, at least I can't speak for you, Jason, but my expectations, you know, I thought we were happy if we'd get about 100 people. So we're kind of 20x that. So that's exciting. And, uh, you know, we really have to thank the listeners. You guys have been uh, super helpful, and uh, you're really great at getting the word out, much better than Jason and I, actually. So all the tweets and social media things that you're doing out there we really appreciate and uh you know the i know personally i've learned a ton over the last year and looking forward to keeping it going and see what the next year brings and i i echo all of that i feel like uh the listeners have really made the show and give us great feedback and ideas for new shows and uh just really grateful to be going along for the ride so uh, congratulations on the first year, Scott, and I, I look forward to our second year together. Yeah. And what we want to talk about today is Singles Day, and we have a special guest joining us, uh, Andrea Wasserman. Andrea has a long history in retail with uh, gigs at Nordstrom, Soul Society, Hudson's Bay, Lord & Taylor, and Nine West. Uh, it'd probably be a shorter list to give kind of the IRF. 100 where she hasn't worked. Uh, Andrea writes a blog about retail and customer experience at captaincustomer.com. Welcome, Andrea. We're really excited to have you here on the Jason and Scott Show. Thanks for having me and happy anniversary. It's an honor to be celebrating the big event with you. If I had known, I would have brought flowers or chocolate or something to uh, send you through the the interwebs. <laughs> if only there was a way to like order something at the last minute and somehow have it arrive at some point. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, we should look into the, that. In the future, we'll have uh, cupcake 3D printers and we can make ourselves little cupcakes. Yes. This w- would have been a perfect opportunity to try voice commerce with 800 flowers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next time, next time. Exactly. Second anniversary. Yeah, it's on my bucket list still. So I want to jump in. Uh, there's a particular reason we invited Andrea on the show to talk about Singles Day. But uh, before we do, uh, in case there are any new listeners that may not be familiar with Singles Day, 
uh, it's probably worth doing a, a super high level recap a, as to what the heck Singles Day is. And so, uh, uh, Andre, can I surprise you and ask you to tell us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are actually a number of different opinions about how Singles Day started. The most prevalent one that I've heard is that it started as a university event or activity when um, some of the many young people who were single about eight uh, years ago wanted to console themselves a little bit and have some events and, and fun and activities and started organizing groups around that. Um, then as the, uh, story goes, Alibaba came in, um, which of course, you know, now, now we know that Alibaba is a global giant traded, um, in the U S not just a Chinese company anymore, but the thought is that Alibaba came in and commercialized singles day and began providing a corporate way for all of these young single and non-single people to gift themselves, um, to, to buy gifts for themselves. And so things have progressed steadily for the past eight years um, with Alibaba and now with other companies as well, doing more and more volume each year on this particular day, um, which is 11-11, November 11th. And so another part of the story goes that 11-11 um, is obviously 11.11. So a lot of singles, which is perhaps why Singles Day is on this particular date. Yeah, and uh, so that's good, and we're definitely going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, before we do, I'd love to – I, I kind of went through a, a very quick tour of your background and history. I would love to hear from you, um, you know, what what brought you into this fun world of e-commerce, and uh, that tour through your career would be great, and then kind of what you're up to now. Um, sure. So I started out – my first exposure to retail was in high school, actually. At the age of 16, I started working – um, at Sunrise Mall on Long Island at the Limited 2 chain store, which was kind of kids and tween clothing. Um, and although I was a little bit older, I was small and I could still fit in it. So that was a great perk of working there. Um, and I always say that I went to the mall when I was 16 to work there and have never really left since. Um, so fast forward many years, um, we can, you know, whether it's to kind of after college in 2000, when I was an investment banking analyst covering the retail industry, or fast forward a little bit farther after business school, and I started working at Nordstrom um, in their strategy group. And that, I would say, was probably my first exposure to e-commerce, because when I actually covered the industry um, as a banking analyst back in 2000, 2001 time, um, you know, e-commerce was something that we were just starting to talk about, which is crazy to think about now. Um, but once I got to Nordstrom, it definitely was in full swing. Um, as I think you've covered on the show from time to time, Nordstrom has been innovative and ahead of the game on what they've done with digital. And so it was a great time to be there and to see that and to be a part of it. Um, and I had a number of different jobs within that company, moving on from strategy to merchandising, um, ultimately to helping lead the bridal division with, which a, with a great team of people, startup within a big company, um, and got to develop the strategy for that in stores, online, marketing, finance, merchandising, a little bit of everything. So um, really just a great experience and wanted to keep that entrepreneurial thread going. Um, and so moved down the West Coast to LA and was the CEO of Soul Society, which I think we would now call a um, digitally native brand. Um, it was primarily e-commerce, uh, also expanded the wholesale business while I was there. 
and then really wanted to be back in New York, which is my hometown, and came back here uh, to be the GM for e-commerce at Hudson's Bay and Morden Taylor, where I worked with just a great team of people. Um, you know, ton of friends in New York from from those companies. Just a lot of talent coming out of there, and a great place to be. Um, and then moved over um, in 2015 to Nine West, where I was the head of direct to consumer for stores and online, which um, is really my passion. Kind of the intersection of the two, and how the um, purchase funnel has changed so quickly over time. Um, it was actually during my tenure there. When I spoke, um, Jason, with one of your Razorfish colleagues, uh, Steve, at the WWD Summit in New York, the Digital Summit, and we talked about how the path to purchase for consumers had become, um, I think I used the technical term, squiggly. <laughs> um, but that is definitely a, um, a lot of fun for, for me to think about and for me to innovate at the intersection of. And then since leaving Nine West, I've been doing consulting um, for some retail brands and also for B2B tech companies that want to work a lot more with retailers. So helping them think through their product positioning and marketing strategy um, using kind of the hat that I wore as a decision maker for a lot of those e-commerce solution decisions um, when I was in these different jobs that I've had. So it's been great sort of having that diversity across the industry. And that actually is how I connected with Alibaba, um, which is what brings us here today. And so I met all, I met some executives from Alibaba over the summer, and they invited me along with a group of about um, 10 influencers and analysts from around the world to see Singles Day up close and personal. And so that is, um, that's kind of where I started and how I ended up in Shenzhen last week. Cool. One, one quick follow-up and, uh, Jason will tell you, I get, I'm the guy that knocks us off track sometimes, but, uh, I can't resist asking you, you've had a lot of these kind of mall based retailer ex experiences. W what do you think about kind of this drumbeat of what I call mall again, that, you know, all these stores are closing and millennials don't go to malls anymore. What, what's kind of your view having been in the belly of the beast? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the data show that that people are not going to malls nearly as much as they used to. Right. We know the hard facts are there that that mall traffic is down. Um, and I think that's natural, given the the alternatives for shopping that have popped up. There are just fewer and fewer reasons that one would go to a mall. Um, that said, I feel strongly that it's not a human behavior that is gone, let alone gone forever. Um, again, as the 16 year old who was, you know, in that mall on Friday nights hanging out, um, I don't believe that there's not a social and human need for that in some way. Um, as you know, the mall developers, we've seen them start to get creative with what is in their mall, whether it's technology or events, um, activities, different types of anchors, no anchors at all. Um, you know, I think it'll take some time to sort out what the role of the mall is. And there are probably you know, fewer malls than we have today that need to play that role. But certainly, I think that there is a future for them and for brick and mortar more, more broadly. Cool. Let, let's jump into Singles Day. Um, I, I follow a lot of the Wall Street analysts, and, and they cover Alibaba. And just a quick summary for folks. So this year, it looks like it came in at $17.8 I've seen headlines of $18 billion where they're rounding up. Um, that represents 32% year-over-year growth in the U.S. dollar. Uh, there's a headwind on Chinese currency. Uh, oh, sorry. So that's 24% year-over-year growth. There's a headwind on Chinese currency. So if you look at um, you know, Wan to Wan or RMB, uh, you end up with 30 
32% year-over-year growth, which is impressive, you know, especially given here in the U.S. we're growing at 15%. But when I'm kind of looking at a chart here that shows that single currency without without um, FX involved, uh, you know, from uh, 2014 grew 63%, 2015 grew 60%, and here we had a year that grew 32%. Um, so uh, just for listeners, that's kind of where we landed, and there's a lot of data out there about – you know, this day being many times as big as Cyber Monday. Um, so, so maybe a good launching point was, did this exceed their expectations that Alibaba had or kind of meet them or was it underwhelming or like what, what's your kind of macro view on how the day played out? Um, the Alibaba executives who, you know, spoke at the end of the 24 hour event because we were there, you know, still at midnight as it was winding down and I can, you know, kind of replay the, the overall trip for you. Um, but there was certainly a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the company about how those numbers shook out. Um, we don't know exactly what their expectations were. Um, you know, there was a, n- a number put out there um, on the analyst side ahead of the event saying we think it'll be, um, you know, 20 billion in U.S. Um, so certainly it missed that. But there wasn't palpable disappointment in the international media center where I watched the numbers come in at all. Um, Certainly a lot of enthusiasm for what they did that day. And I think that part of it is, you know, certainly, as you pointed out, Scott, the growth has slowed. um, But the number has also gotten really, really big. So, you know, I don't know what else is anywhere near this large and still growing this much. Um, and I think it's that recognition that probably contributed to an overall positive feeling about the day. Um, I also wonder, you know, we're talking, I think, about what Alibaba's numbers were, um, but they're not the only game um, or the only player in the singles day game anymore. Certainly, they are by far the dominant one. Um, but, I, you know, I do wonder whether, whether we saw others ringing the register and, and whether the day overall was a little bit bigger than we, than we think. Cool. The um, my favorite part of Singles Day is all the aftermath pictures that show you know these these poor picking and shipping guys like swimming in a sea of packages and yes. uh, all that kind of stuff. I know you probably didn't get to see that, but um, you know it, it, it's it's always part of the fun is you're kind of like wow, how do they ever ship this much in a day? You know, it's kind of like the worst thing you can do for shipping infrastructure is to jam as much into a single day. Yes, yes. And they actually, um, one of the one of the staff that was thrown around was about the massive volume of packages, um, you know, just being, I think it was, you know, 10 times what the what they what somebody thought a UPS or a FedEx ships in the US in any given year. Um, So just to kind of put it in perspective, it was certainly, you know, that number of packages. Yeah, the a lot of the sort of micro stats are pretty overwhelming. Like I, you know, I think one of the things they always like to talk about is, uh, how quickly they get to that first billion dollars in sales. And I, and if I'm, if memory serves, that was about five minutes. Exactly. Exactly. It was, um, they, and they start the counter going as soon as the clock strikes midnight, um, you know, from November 10th to November 11th. And so we saw on this massive screen, it was this big dashboard, the, the dollars start to just roll in, um, and that, and that little wheel just going and going and going. Um, and I, you know, I I have a short video of it just kind of watching those numbers on my phone. Um, but it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Yep. And then, you know, the, all the new experiences they launched, we'll talk about this a little later, but they, uh, they had a VR shopping experience, which, you know, suddenly becomes the largest VR shopping experience of all times. Um, 
all, all, uh, all of those sort of fun things. One of the other big stats that they always talk about is the percentage of the, that GMV that occurs on mobile devices. And it, it's mm-hmm. always been a real high percentage. Uh, that number, you know, tipped up quite a bit again this year. So I think it hit like 83% yeah. of that 17.8 yeah. billion. Yes. Was from mobile up from, phones. I think, yeah. Up from, um, I think I, I, about 82% up from, I think 68% the year prior. Exactly. Um, and part, part of that I think is, um, well, we know that the Chinese consumer in a lot of China really skipped over desktop and went right to mobile. So that's certainly one driver for that degree of penetration that we don't see on mobile here. Um, another part of it, though, and, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about some of the technology and the interactive experience that Alibaba provided. Um, but a lot of that is through mobile. Um, and so to take advantage in a lot of the shopping as entertainment, you you would have naturally been engaging on mobile, which probably helped drive that number as well. Yeah. And so uh, this always brings me great joy because this is a, a hotly debated topic on the Jason and Scott show. Um, you know, all, most listeners would be familiar at this by this point that in North America, all the traffic is shifting to mobile devices. But unfortunately, the conversion rates on mobile devices are much worse, like like one third uh, as high as desktop. And so you have this thing we always talk about, the mobile gap. And this the the recurring debate here is uh, I sort of feel like large part of that is based on uh, users not being used to mobile conventions and our our mobile experience is really, frankly, stinking. Um, and that as we get better at executing mobile and we take a lot of the friction out of the mobile experience, that that gap can narrow quite a bit. And uh, I think uh, Scott likes to take the position that that's... Uh, that some of that uh, difference in conversion is a lot more endemic and that users are probably never going to convert as well on mobile as they do on desktop. So I, I would like to point out there's a very large population of people uh, that are uh, doing their e-commerce conversions quite well on mobile devices in China. Yes, yes. Um, I, do, I mean, I do think that we'll, not that you, not that I necessarily want to jump in and take a side on this. I <laughs> Although that's always fun. I do think that um, that we'll see mobile conversion improve. I think that um, mobile UX for a lot of retailers will get materially better. I think that comfortable com- customers will just get more comfortable shopping um, on mobile. And then I also think that we'll just be spending less and less time on desktop. So even where we have customers who aren't super comfortable or are not um, are not having materially better experiences, mobile will just be um, the easier way to go anyway. As yeah. it is, I know already they're not going home in a lot of cases to a desktop to buy on. Yeah, my argument is in the U.S. we've tried to replicate the desktop model on the phone. So the whole Google, and then you go to the website, and then you enter all your stuff. And in China, you have the benefit of there being effectively you know four players ish. So you've got JD, Alibaba, and and their whole family, and then the Tencent family, and uh, everyone kind of picks a payment method, and then it works across all these different things. So you just kind of say on your phone, I'm an Alipay person, or I'm a Tencent pay, or whatever it's called, and um, then you can kind of use it everywhere. Whereas here, you really don't have that. You're kind of like, maybe you're in the Amazon mode, and then every retailer wants you to use their credit card payment, and it just doesn't really work as well. So so I think we're, we'll have to look more like China for to solve the problem. Exactly. So, so we're, oh, I was so we're gonna, both right. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, we definitely don't want to encourage you to take a side, but if you, of your own volition, chose to take a side, just know that I am the audio editor, so, you know. <laughs> so so my, you only uh, the, the part of me that agrees with you might end up on the podcast? I'm just saying there may be an intrinsic advantage okay. to, to taking my side. Uh, At least you've admitted it. Yeah, or sometimes you'll say, uh, and I choose, and then it'll be, it sounds a lot like Jason's voice when it says Jason. <laughs> so. Which brings up a great, uh, complete side note. Adobe Creative Suite uh, announced a new feature this year uh, that's quite scary. I don't know if you guys heard about this, but uh, they, they have a feature in uh, Adobe Audition that allows uh, you you train Adobe. You let it listen to 20 minutes of a person talking, and then you can type sentences, and it will say that the sentence is using that person's voice. Wow, that uh, I don't want to say that there's potential for danger there, but there might be potential for danger. Oh, I think it's super creepy. They're they're calling yeah. it Photoshop for audio, and the 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 perfectly legitimate use case that they have in mind is you know you shoot a movie or whatever, and the the actor says one wrong word, and it's super expensive to bring the actor back and and uh, lay down new voice tracks, and so that this might be you know for for sort of medium budget projects, this this could could save video producers a lot of money, but uh, I, for one, plan to misuse it on the podcast regularly. <laughs> You've been warned, Scott. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm just seeing what I'm saying. <laughs> one, uh, so one, tr- going back to China, so set the stage for us. So you're in this, you know, I'm, I'm picturing you in this, you know, knock Star Trek-like command center with giant screens and live tally boards and that kind of thing. Is Is that kind of what you were exposed to when you went over there? Um, part of it definitely was. So it was definitely a whirlwind, a whirlwind trip, kind of a time warpy 36 hours. I got to Shenzhen on Thursday afternoon. So that was November 10th, took a quick nap at the hotel and then got picked up to go to the beginning of the, um, of the show basically. So there were about 10 or 12 of us. We had a briefing with Joe Sai, who's the co-founder and vice chairman of Alibaba. That was great. Um, I had met him at the event I mentioned over the summer. So it was good to, um, to hear from him again. And then there was a panel where some of my fellow, um, fellow people in my group spoke to a room of international media. Um, and we got some more comments from Joe as well. So that was sort of the way that it began. Um, and then we had a dinner and then we headed over to a large indoor stadium type of venue for the countdown gala to kick off singles day. So there was a lot of press um, in advance of this event. I'm sure you saw some of it. And a lot of what was covered by the U.S. media um, in advance uh, had picked up on Katy Perry being there. So she actually canceled at the last minute. Um, But Kobe Bryant was there and a ton of other celebrities who were clearly very, very famous in the eyes of the largely young Chinese audience in attendance. Um, And then Jack Ma, the charismatic founder of Alibaba, came out and did a magic trick. Um, so the event went on for several hours and really felt like a full-on Super Bowl halftime show with all of the lights and entertainment and music and booms and things like that. Um, so, you know, certainly a, certainly a production. And then just a little bit before midnight was when we headed over to, um, Scott, what you described as kind of this Star Trek-like room. And so it was, you know, rows and rows of, of tables for media um, and speaker after speaker that was luckily for my sake translated from Chinese into English via headset. Um, and that's where we also did the actual 
virtual countdown and kick off at midnight with that um, kind of virtual register I mentioned that started to ring. Cool. Did they let you sleep at all or did they have like toothpicks on your eyes? Or <laughs> they did. They were, they were kind enough to, um, to get us back to the hotel, um, maybe you're one or something on Friday morning, um, you know, got some sleep. That was my first, first night of sleep since, you know, I had left the U S on Tuesday <laughs> and yeah, it's funny how that happens when you uh, cross the international timeline and everything. And, uh, then in the morning we went back for some more, you know, smaller group briefings. One of them was with Michael Evans, who's the president of Alibaba, who's really focused on globalization and, um, another, panel with some of the brands that sell through Alibaba and then back over to that media center that I described for presentations from different partners who have different perspectives on China and Singles Day um, and different things that that the brands are doing on that platform. And Evans is the Goldman Sachs dude, right? That left Goldman to go to, is that is that him? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it turns out that he's had a really a longstanding relationship with Alibaba um, and then, you know, went over with really the idea of, of globalization, um, which I think means a couple of different things, but namely, you know, I, the easiest way for me to think about it is in two pieces. One is, you know, what, what are the opportunities for non-Chinese brands and retailers to, um, sell through Alibaba's platforms and then separately, what are the opportunities for Alibaba to be present in other countries? Uh, so kind of two pieces of that um, was was largely what we heard from him. Yeah. And I, I want to dive into that a little bit more. I do have to go backwards for just one second. Is Jack Ma good at magic? He, he did a very popular. There were some cards. There was it was tricky. It was definitely wow. tricky. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Jeff Bezos doing that. No, I remember two years ago he came out and he had a uh, he was dressed like a rock star for Singles Day and he had like a pink spiky wig on and like leopard tights and stuff. It's a it's a crazy image. Yes, yeah, he um no, but he he's really beloved there. Um, people get very excited when he comes in. He's he's quite the celebrity um, beyond what you might expect of your of kind of an average CEO, which which certainly he's not, just given the the size of Alibaba and the scale within China. Um, but yeah, the magic, tr the magic show, uh, the magic trick got a uh, good response. <laughs> Did you get to ask him if he listens to the podcast? I didn't. I'm sorry. But next time I see him, I will. Okay. Thank you. That's a promise. He, Scott's just messing with you. He, we know he <laughs> listens to the podcast. That's true. That's true. I'm sure that, that's actually why I didn't ask because I already knew the answer. Exactly. He, he, I was going to get an angry note if you said his magic trick wasn't good. <laughs> and, uh, just, a reminder for listeners that heard our first show, you got kind of ripped off because not only did Katy Perry not show up, but last year they had Daniel Craig, mm -hmm. which was yes. seemed, seemed kind of cool, like international celebrity spy seemed like a, a perfectly appropriate. And then my favorite last year, which I didn't see anything equivalent this year, uh, he wasn't at the event, but they hired Kevin Spacey to do sort of the intro video and he did it uh, in the house of cards character, like in the oval office set. Yes. Yes, that's true. That's true. And that was really clever. Did they like have any sort of cool celebrity via video um, moments this year that, that stuck out? 
It was actually more, well, so there were kind of two things going on. So one was what was happening live. And that, you know, I think really, uh, despite kind of the the Katy Perry no-show, um, really was celebrity studded. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant, a lot of, lot of cheers and enthusiasm for him. Um, and then cl- there were a number of... Um, of Chinese musicians and celebrities who clearly the crowd went crazy for. Um, I can't honestly say that they're, that they're ones I recognized, but, but some of my, um, you know, the, the other people in my group who maybe are just more, um, follow Chinese culture a little bit more closely and, and, and music and that kind of thing, they even knew a couple of them. Um, so maybe I'm just not that cool, but there seemed to be some pretty, um, big names and impressive talent there. Um, and there was, of course, you know, Jack Ma, Kobe, like I said, and then some other very exciting things going on in person. Like, for example, it, um, Victoria's Secret staged kind of part of their fashion show that they're so well known for here with the Angels. Like they did that live there, which was the first time that they've done anything like that. So certainly no shortage of, um, of excitement in that arena. And then on the screen, there were um, you know, constantly commercials, if you will, that were shoppable um, and different types of, of, of opportunities for anybody who was watching from home on TV and then, and then separate mobile opportunities to interact. And even in the arena itself, actually, there were a lot of games, a lot of opportunity to cheer for kind of one team or another and win something. Uh, so it, it did feel like one big game. Um, in a way. Very cool. Um, I wanted to follow up on the, the last point that, that you alluded to, uh, talking about like the opportunities for Western brands to participate in Singles Day and sell to the Chinese market, but then also the sort of expansion of Singles Day outside of China. And I, I remember last year, um, you know, it, it exceeded all all forecasts last uh, that year, and every, and there was a lot of buzz. And I felt like the big thing that really stuck out to me was Jack Ma talking about, and wait till you see next year uh, when we become a global phenomenon. And so I, you know, I took that as sort of a promise that that this year's Singles Day was going to be quite a bit more global than last year's was. And so I guess I like what what was your impression? Um, did you, uh, see a lot of presence of Western brands, um, selling there? And then, you know, was there any, any sort of discussion or, or evidence of, uh, a broader adoption outside of China? Definitely, definitely in a couple of ways. So I guess there are sort of two pieces of that, that I, that I can attack. Um, one is, you know, how can other countries sell in China on singles day, um, and really, you know, I would say there's the, there's a bigger question of how I'm sorry, I didn't mean how can other countries, but how can brands from other countries um, sell in China on Singles Day? And I think there's also a broader question about how can brands from around the world sell in China, period, more broadly. Um, but we can focus on Singles Day for now. And then there's another question of, you know, how consumers outside of China might be targeted to be part of this Singles Day phenomenon because clearly e-commerce is borderless and you don't need to live in China to decide that you deserve a present for yourself or for somebody else um, on 11-11. Say someone's anniversary, for example. That's a great, that's a great example. Exactly. Um, And so they could either be, you know, consumers outside of China could either be targeted by um, Chinese retailers or by 
global retailers. Um, and it could even be Alibaba going to other, other regions or could be U.S. retailers targeting consumers um, in the U.S. So lots of different ways, I think, for this to become much more global than it is today. Um, we do know that 27% of purchases um, that were made on Singles Day through Alibaba were from international brands or merchants. So that's a pretty big number for some. I think it's a pretty big number for something that is um, really known as a China event. Um, so clearly, there are brands from around the world who are getting in front of in front of consumers um, in China and wanting to be a part of this this day. Um, Chinese consumers, we know, and we I heard about this while we were there, are increasingly sophisticated about foreign brands, are seeking them out, are very, very um, receptive to them. And one of the themes that um, Mike Evans did talk about was the idea of globalizing and both and localizing um, Singles Day. So whether that's through, you know, partnership um through acquisitions they've made, or we've seen, you know, some recent headlines about Alibaba wanting to um, entrench themselves in Southeast Asia, um, where we know that Amazon, because it's rarely adjacent in Scott show that we don't get to talk about Amazon in some way, right? So we know that um, both of those companies are, you know, developing a presence in Southeast Asia. Um, and part of that, I think, you know, is because the consumers in Indonesia specifically are even younger than in China and mobile first, um, truly le leapfrogging computers. So however you think about it, there are a lot of different reasons why Alibaba would want this to become a global event and why other retailers might want to work with Alibaba as it becomes a global event um, or to you know go around Alibaba and participate in some other ways. So I've seen a few different things going on. Um, one of them is that Michael Kors, which has been building its business in China um, and we know has high hopes for its future there, took part in Singles Day this year with a game on um, WeChat. WeChat is absolutely not owned by Alibaba. So that's an example of how um, a global brand can come into the market and do something a little bit different. Um, they did um, what sounds to be kind of a, a neat game where customers in mainland China and Hong Kong and Macau could scan a QR code with WeChat um, and then play and unlock discount codes to use on Michael Kors Chinese site or at its stores there, um, which and you know I'm sure we'll get to kind of the online to offline piece. But that was also, um, you know, that was also a big part of the day. So jumping around a little bit, but I think, you know, all of this goes to say that there are are lots of ways that outside that brands from outside of China were selling into China, um, and then also some ways that Alibaba is expanding this effort outside of China. Cool. So you, you've kind of hit on some of these kind of innovative mobile experiences. It sounds like they're more interactive and gamey than kind of, you know, hey, here's 10 widgets to buy. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. That seems pretty new this year. I've seen them do a couple things like they had a, you know, um, a couple cars available and you had to be, you had to jump through some hoops to get them. But it sounds like this year it was much more interactive gameplay involved with the whole celebration. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, so I think something that, you know, we want all the listeners to understand is that in China, shopping is entertainment. 
Um, and that is so and Alibaba knows that um, there was really no dispute from everybody in in attendance who knows that customer certainly better than I do, that it is that shopping is a sport there. That was one of the direct quotes. And that um, the comparison made was that in the U.S., people uh, shop online for efficiency, not necessarily for enjoyment. Um, and in China, that's just not tolerated. People aren't going to say, well, I'm shopping online and I just want to do it quickly and get out and it doesn't have to be a good experience, they are really looking for that experience. Um, and so whether it's the example that I just gave with Michael Kors, which had nothing to do with Alibaba, or whether it's um, a number of different games and things that Alibaba added, that definitely is a goal of giving that Chinese shopper you know, the experience that they think she's looking for. And certainly, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask what what's like the wackiest one that really didn't land for you. Sometimes, you know, we'll we'll do all these China things and like one th one experience you're like, wow, I really don't get this. Did you have one of those where you're like, what the heck is this? Um, I'm not sure if there's one that I that I totally didn't get. I think there, you know, there can be a point where there are so many games and activities and opportunities for interaction going on at one time that it I could imagine, you know, for the customer just being like, oh my gosh, like this is overwhelming. What do I do first? Mm -hmm. um, I didn't I didn't talk to customers to know whether that definitely happened. Um, but for example, for um, for for customers in China who were home kind of watching that big kickoff gala in the arena that I mentioned, there were like five different ways that they could participate digitally. So um, they could kind of fight, and I say that in quotes, um, to win celebrity clothing, where you would have um, performing, performing artists on stage taking off pieces of clothing, not in like an overly scandalous way. Um, although this, now that I'm talking about it, it actually does sound a little bit scandalous, but in like literally <laughs> throwing them at the television camera. Um, and then the audience, um, this was actually, this was live in the arena, could fight, for, fight to win that clothing by scanning it with their phones. Um, and then it would be packed and shipped to the winner at the end of the night. Um, so that, that was kind of going on at one moment. And then at another, um, at another moment, there would be like uh, two different teams with these big like red and black pillow looking cushions, like fighting, almost like a grown up pillow fight in some way. Um, and it was two different groups of celebrity participants. Um, and they would be competing in various games throughout the evening. So it would kind of like pick up at different points. Um, and during each of the competitions, the audience could tap a specific icon on their phones as you know, as often as, as frequently as they could. And then the team with the most taps would kind of receive a way to have an advantage over the other, other team. So in some ways, you know, I, I wasn't playing along. I was kind of watching this in the arena. Um, but I do wonder, you know, if there are too many different games going on at one time, is there any, is there any fatigue there? I don't know. Certainly, I think it was a way to um, have a good shot at keeping the most number of people engaged, because maybe if you didn't like, you know, the two things I mentioned, you wanted to participate in something else where you could be the director and vote in real time to guide the plot direction of what was going to happen next on stage, which you could also do. So I don't think it's that um, anything, any one thing fell flat for me, more just, you know, there's a lot going on. Yeah, the uh, close thing I think Jason and I should try at our next live podcasting. We'll we'll uh, work on that. Yeah, hey, you know, shop.org. Yeah.
they, they they sound like a lot of ways to sort of digitally recreate those those two customers um fighting over the last TV doorbuster deal on Black Friday. So I like that. Yes, yeah. And then there were also a number of different, um, and this actually, hey, maybe maybe this is a podcast learning, but um, for people who were watching the gala via live stream on mobile, they were able to do like communal chat and to support kind of those teams I was talking about also by tapping that icon um, on mobile. Um, and they could get like behind the scenes view into the live stream. So opportunities for them as well. So maybe those are some things you can work into the podcast. And to uh, remind listeners as to how meta that is, that's basically uh, people at home on their mobile device watching a live show about people at home shopping on their mobile devices. That is seriously meta. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So and it is funny, uh, you know, you mentioned the sort of uh, uh, opportunity overload and all the distraction that that's often a cultural debate we have about user experiences in Asia and the West. The you know, the most popular successful UXs, uh, particularly in China, tend to be these very uh, busy experiences that have a lot of visually prominent things fighting with each other and you put Western consumers in front of it and they, they tend to not like it. Um, but to your yeah, point, we talked about that. that that's a, that's a, you know, a very popular, you know, in, uh, entertainment um, option in China is to, you know, pop onto Tmall or pop onto Taobao and just look for deals. Even if you have no intention of buying anything, um, just, just sort of using the interface and browsing. And so it, it is funny. It seems like in some ways the, the, the live experience uh, mirror that, that distinction of their UX. Yeah, I think that's a, I didn't make that connection, but I think that's a great insight. And, um, you know, two quick things there. We did actually um, talk among our group about how different, not even just the overall user experience, but the simple design is of mobile apps that are targeting the Chinese consumer versus the ones with a lot of white space that we see targeting consumers here in the U.S., so that definitely didn't get past anyone. I mean, if you if you download, for example, you know, Tmall or something, you you see the difference. It is it is loud and it is coming at you. Um, so certainly very different from from a design standpoint. Yeah, you know. So two of the uh, experiences I wanted to ask of you, if you saw or or, or maybe even got a chance to try, um, the one that that seems like it got the most buzz here is they had that. VR experience that they they called like buy plus and the if I have it right the backstory here is they they're selling like a a local version of like Google Cardboard on the sites for you know a month leading up to the to the event so they uh, and they're selling them for like what would be the US equivalent of 10 cents so yes. very inexpensively they sold a million uh, cardboard headsets that would let you turn your your mobile phone into a VR experience and then uh on singles day you could actually uh shop a bunch of or uh, I don't know if a bunch is a fair characterization uh you could shop some internationally famous shopping destinations through VR and actually make make purchases and I think one of those was uh Macy's in your backyard in uh, uh yes. Herald Square yes it is so trippy um I have never experienced anything like this so they I didn't try the you know 15 cent um glasses that were for order, but they did have more, um, you know, finished headsets in the media center for us to try. 
Uh, and so I did put a pair of those on. I did it for as long as I could. I actually got quite dizzy from it. I don't know if that's a problem that other consumers have um, and whether that will affect the adoption of this kind of technology or whether people will just get used to it or whether the technology will change. Um, but I got pretty dizzy as I felt like I was like, you know, running down a Macy's aisle or something like that um, on video. But it is um, it's completely surreal to be able to do something like that. And to actually be able to kind of click and and get more information. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the technology that we saw. Um, I think my favorite, um, you know, ready for prime time piece of technology that I saw in the sort of expo center that Alibaba had set up to show us what they're working on for the future was um, an an AR experience where you can hold up your phone in front of, you know, let's say a muffin in a coffee shop. It was like a cafe example that they had set up and see the nutritional information or the ingredients in whatever item you are hovering over with your phone. Um, so there's not just sort of the, the VR that you mentioned where you're actually kind of transported around the world to go shopping, but also, you know, what are the elements of that technology that can be really, really useful in the moment, just wherever you're standing. Wow, that's very cool. I hadn't heard about that. And, uh, you know, that that's super interesting to me because it, it just, in general, in our whole space, it feels like uh, there there are now there's a ton of evidence that some of these uh, digital attributes that everyone gets when they shop on e-commerce sites have become you know super useful to helping all consumers make purchase decisions. And yet in North America, you know, we have no way to deliver any of that content to the 91 percent of all purchase decisions that happen in a store. So um, exactly. Yeah. You know, AR seems like on a phone that a consumer carries with them seems like uh, a, a potentially really interesting cost effective way to do that. The the AR experience I did read about and I, this one probably would have been hard to experience in the Expo Center. So uh, I won't fault you for not having seen it. But I read that they did sort of a, a game that was kind of a knockoff on Pokemon Go. And I, I think the, the notion was that you could try to find the team all cat, which for, for folks that don't know the. The um the logo for T-Mall is a cat that's sort of a, a thematically similar to Hello Kitty. Um, that you could find that cat and catch uh, him in various stores and get points for doing that. And it was actually a sort of a subtle way of driving shoppers to those specific stores that sponsored the game. And I, I want to say Starbucks was one of the sponsors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think actually it was, you're exactly right. I think you described the experience perfectly. We did hear about that and talk about that. Although, as you suggested, I wasn't actually a part of it. Um, and, and to be honest, it, it wasn't a subtle way of driving traffic to stores. It was an overt way. Um, and I think that that online to offline bridge is something that, um, that Alibaba, Alibaba is really proud of trying to create for merchants in China, that they really don't want to be seen as just you know, taking dollars away from stores and putting them online, but that they want it to be about bridging the two and about helping consumers kind of shop small and shop big and shop offline and shop online. So, you know, certainly, again, I would just my takeaway there is that it wasn't an accident that that traffic was being driven into stores as opposed to into parks or somewhere else. It really was about driving um, brick and mortar traffic, which, you know, as I as I suggested with my mall comments earlier, I for one really like to see. Um, So there was that piece of it that was online to offline. 
And then there was something else I thought was really interesting um, that I that I hadn't known about before, which I guess I would call offline to online, um, if you want to kind of stick with the O to O vernacular. Um, but they actually had a speaker from um, rural China explain an initiative happening there, which is um, sort of depots that local villagers can go to and get help placing online orders. So even if they don't have a computer and maybe they don't even have a mobile phone to be able to participate in Singles Day or in e-commerce generally, but they also lack a lot of product availability in the more rural area where they live, um, this allowed them to actually go to a central spot and have access to a device where they could then access all of this additional merchandise. Um, so that actually is sort of the the opposite of the cat game driving people to stores, but it's recognizing where there may not be stores and people actually need help getting online um, to expand their access to product. So I liked that as well. Yeah, very interesting. The um, one of the debates that's kind of been uh, brought up in the last six months is, you know, what is GMV for the Alibaba network? So, so we mentioned at the top of the show they did seventeen point eight billion in GMV, and, and that seems to be one of the big metrics they run through on, if not the metric for uh, for Singles Day. Um, and it, it it's kind of complicated because uh, for listeners, there, there's kind of the the major buckets, the pools of GMV that are there. You have Taobao, which is kind of the how this all starts. Started essentially, um, and it's more of a person-to-person trading. So think of it kind of like Craigslist with a payment optional kind of thing, which is Alipay. Um, and then you have Tmall, which Al- Alipay is pretty much required, and it's more brands and brand names and that kind of thing. And then you have the more B2B kind of, I want a factory to make some sunglasses for me kind of thing, which is the Alibaba proper Um the bulk of the GMV I think they talk about on Singles Day is Tmall and Taobao, and and the controversy comes in that that pool of GMV at Taobao that uh, is essentially people saying, "Hey, we're going to transact," but then uh, there's no way to know if they do or not because there's no payment system involved. Um, so, you know, the skeptics say, "Wow, a lot of this GMV is really." not trackable. Therefore, maybe it's not real. Um, now, you know, Alibaba does report their revenue numbers after they go through their quarterly results and stuff. So there's, there's real revenue that comes out of that and they don't make money uh, on those transactions where no GMV happens or anything like that. But, but a lot of people, their argument is that these GMV numbers are really inflated. Um, did they talk about that all or did you get any indication? Did they give you breakdown of the different marketplaces that were contributing or anything like that as well? So there were two, I would say, controversial topics that came up in the Q&A with the global media. One of them is exactly what you describe, um, which is in this SEC line of questioning um, around what the true revenue of this company really is. Um, I did not get anything like a breakdown, but um, you know, all I can do is kind of say what I heard from their perspective, which was conviction that you know everything is being recorded and reported as it should be. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, the only thing that I had to go on from my perspective. Um, you know, certainly I think the, the structure of the sales that you're describing, Scott is, um, you know, raises, raises questions about kind of how do you know exactly what the numbers are? Um, directionally, I would say they're probably still really, really, really big and growing very nicely. Um, but I don't have more insight into it than that. 
Interestingly, the other um, somewhat controversial topic came up, sort of the one where somebody asked the question and everybody hold their breath for a second, waiting to see what the answer was, um, was on the first day that I was there. So on November 10th, when Joe Tsai got up and spoke, um, one of the one of the first questions that he got was about the U.S. election that was barely over at that point um, and a question about, um, you know, what. Joe or Alibaba thought about the impact of um, Donald Trump and and any of his trade positions. Um, you know how how somebody somebody was asking how how Joe thought that would impact Alibaba, and he was very firm in saying you know positive U.S. China relations are good for business, good for both countries. Um, you know he drove home the point that Alibaba is helping U.S. businesses large and small gain access to the China market. Um, and that all of this really creates American jobs and, and economic opportunity. So those, I would say, you touched on one of them, and then I kind of added the other, were, were some of the hotter topics, I guess, that came up um, among the international media. Kind of the third one is counterfeits. Did that come up at all? Oh, yes. How could I forget? Yes, that is definitely, um, yeah, that's definitely the 800-pound gorilla. Um, yeah, that came up a number of times. And and I had also um, heard Alibaba address that at an event, you know, previously. Um, and the, the answer there is always, you know, like, we're on it. We're, you know, getting better and better at dealing with it. Um, you know, it's not okay. It won't be tolerated. We need to be trusted. So, um you know, again, I think that I think both that and the SEC kind of revenue reporting question um, are ones that will continue to be asked, probably for very good reason, um, and that the company has a firm position on. And you know, beyond that, what's under the surface, I don't, I don't have a lot more visibility into. Yeah, I mean, there, there, it's going to be interesting. Um, obviously, they have you know, now because of their size, a huge amount of leverage. Um, and, you know, that leverage can both uh, be used to help uh, combat counterfeit, but it can also be used to sort of knock down uh, brands that complain about counterfeiting. So, um, yes. and I think, I think we see that on both sides of the pond in fairness. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think they're, um, you know, one of the reasons that they're so focused on it is because they want to be the China solution for, you know, so many brands in the world. And so that that trust and that integrity is going to be really important, especially as you see other companies um, come in and want a piece, not just of Singles Day, um, but of China overall. You know, I mentioned that Michael Kors was was participating through um, WeChat. You know, we hear other companies from time to time participating on JD.com instead of Tmall. Um, and then we also have, um, you know, companies that are going out and saying, we just want to deal directly with China and set up our own, our own website. So I think to be, um, you know, to remain at the center of the pathway into China for so many global brands, the, the, um, the emphasis that Alibaba does place on addressing these things is, is an important one. Yeah, absolutely. And that, so that's a great opportunity to maybe, um, zoom back from just Singles Day and talk about China in general. Um, the for folks that don't know, Alibaba is and Tmall are the primary way a Western brand would get access to a digital uh, Chinese market. So you know, in the U.S., if you were going to sell uh, your own product direct, like you'd you'd probably open your own website and have your own branded site. The 
in China, the consumer behavior is not to go to the uh, those individual branded sites. And so, you know, even though you'll see brands stand up their own sites, the amount of traffic they get on the, that site versus the amount of traffic they get on their product detail pages on on T-Mile um, is minuscule. And so you if you're a Western brand, you sort of have to uh, have a presence on on Alibaba. And, you know, the best evidence of that is. Amazon has a store on Alibaba because uh, mm-hmm. that that's just is where the the customers are. And so given that they have that position and they obviously want to leverage that, they, they, you know, certainly have a vested interest in making the Western brands feel comfortable. And I do think Western brands were a big part of the, the overall sales mix, right? Like I, I think, you know, Nike and Apple were amongst the, the overall yes. top sellers. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Nike, Nike was number one overall. So exactly, uh, and so you know, I, uh, I I think when you look at the Chinese market, it's interesting because you you know you have these pretty affluent you know cities, these tier one cities where a lot of the purchase volume are these Western brands, and then as you alluded to earlier, you know you zoom all the way down to like tier four and tier five cities. Um, there may not be local stores in those cities. And so the only access to a lot of goods might be through e-commerce, which, you know, in China predominantly equates to, to Alibaba. Um, and there, you know, it might be a, a different mix of indigenous and, and Western brands. Yes. Um, And I think it's hard for, um, it can be hard for Western retailers and and brands to um, grasp these Chinese platforms. You know, the way that you just described it, I think is exactly right that, you know, this is the main way of doing business in China. Um, But at the same time, you know, U.S. retailers and brands here are not users of these platforms because they're not in China. Um, You know, you can go to an Alibaba website, but that doesn't really demonstrate what the business opportunity is. And so it really can, I think, be hard to get a good visual of that. But I think that, you know, picturing some of what, you know, you've articulated so well around the the busyness of the design and the fact that, um, you know, traffic to direct retail sites is so low as a percent to total. Um, and thinking about the conversation we had of how much is being done, how much engagement and sales are being done on mobile. Um, for example, you know, a typical user opens those apps 10 times per day, Alibaba's. Um, so, you know, that's, that's very, very different. And it is all about that entertainment. So I think that's kind of another big learning or idea that applies here is that it can't just be a about the transaction. It goes back to that quote about how tra- shopping in China is a real sport um, and has to be has to be treated that way, it has to be fun and not, you know, a chore. Yep. Uh, and I, I think you're exactly right. I think it's very difficult for, for folks that w- grew up with a, a Western um, perspective to completely appreciate that unless you spend an awful lot of time there. Uh, I, I am curious, though, did you notice, like, so Singles Day aside, it's, it's super interesting to visit China and see a lot of these differences in how consumers behave. Like, did anything else jump out at you as interesting or maybe something that you, uh, I don't know, didn't expect or think 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 folks here might not know about how how Chinese consumers use use digital and commerce? Um, I think that, you know, I, I had heard and I had been to China before and, and certainly heard about how important entertainment is as part of the experience. 
Um, but, you know, going back to that whole list of interactive opportunities that I ran through with you, just as it related to the kickoff gala, I think really paints the picture of, um, of, of just how rich an experience everything needs to be that it, that, that so, so many fewer transactions there are just transactions. It's an experience and it's loud and it's busy and it's sensory overload for people like us. Um, but that really is much more of the norm, at least for now. Um, at some point, you know, as the market changes, maybe that will change as well and things will just get more efficient. Um, but for right now, it has to be much more about much more than a linear, linear path to purchase. And I think for me, um, you know, being in the gala and seeing how people could have just, you know, bought what they wanted to buy but chose to engage in all of these ways along um, a very, again, I'll use the word squiggly path to purchase, that definitely drives it home. That it is not just about, you know, buying and having something get to your house quickly, but it's about much more than that. And it comes through, we've talked about, you know, UX and the way that apps and sites are designed. So you see it there, but you also see it in every um, you know, brick and mortar shopping experience. Um, you know, it's not neat rows of merchandise in a store. It's, you know, floor to ceiling and 360 degrees. Um, and that's also the case with the, you know, very, very busy street markets that sell everything under the sun, um, in, you know, lots of loud colors and stretching all the way up to the ceiling and down to the floor and in piles. Um, and, and that's just, that's what kind of people expect and, and want to see. Of course, in the malls, there are the more, you know, polished and shiny and minimally merchandised luxury stores as well. Um, but it's not predominantly what's there. Yeah, it, I, I think that's that's super interesting. I think you're you're absolutely right that the the sort of difference in aesthetics like is mirrored in brick and mortar stores as much as it is uh, in e-commerce with that sort of uh, um bizarre like like feel as opposed to you know sort of all the the negative space and careful merchandising that you get in in a lot of western stores yeah and not even just the not brick and mortar but even where there is something physical and there are no, no bricks and no mortar because it's like the street markets i probably need a different term yeah. <laughs> and there are, you know, there are more of those than I've seen in any of my travels anywhere in the world. Um, you know, that's just a really normal way of, of shopping. And it is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm from New York. I love the energy here. Um, but it's interesting because when I'm in China and I, I spent a couple of days in Hong Kong after singles day, and I actually, you know, I was walking around Hong Kong and I'm a big city person and I actually felt even more energized by what surrounded me in Hong Kong than in New York. And I remember thinking, you know, like, wow, this is like really the shot of energy that I needed. <laughs> um, and, and so for people who might find, you know, parts of New York overwhelming, um, you know, think about like the, the high energy that some of these Asian cities uh, represent. Yeah. So that brings up another point. Like, so, and you were pre predominantly in Shenzhen when you were in mainland China? On this trip, yes. I was only there. That was for Singles Day. And then I went on to Hong Kong. Yeah. And which is Alibaba's hometown. Um, the, did, um, you happen to notice very much of the sort of WeChat activity or any chat commerce? Or did you get a chance to, to talk to any Chinese consumers or see any of uh, sort of those things at play that we hear so much about? Um, a lot of, a lot of WeChat, you know, WeChat is certainly where, 
um, where consumers are are just spending a lot of time. There are just so many things that one can do, um, you know, on that platform, whether it's social or it's commerce or it's you know news and things. Um, it's a it's a very very big destination. Clearly very big destination. In fact, I was having a conversation with um, one of the other kind of international business people in my group that I spent time with for Singles Day. And it was somebody who is on, um, I don't remember which which social networks he's on, but I said that, you know, I use, you know, Twitter fairly obsessively, as Jason knows. Um, and I, I use Instagram and, and LinkedIn and occasionally Facebook. And he's like, you know, what, why, why aren't you on WeChat? And I was like, honestly, like, you know, I can't handle another platform, but you know, his point was there it's, you know, it's a really, it's a really big deal for personally and professionally to be active on WeChat. Oh yeah, absolutely. A uh, funny story. Like, so I have an, uh, several offices there and, um, they all do all their business and communicate with each other exclusively through WeChat. So they yeah. literally only have email to communicate with us. Yeah. Um, I believe it. And so, you know, the first time I went there, I had to install WeChat. And the the first thing I noticed, I felt like I had been totally ripped off because I, you know, having heard about WeChat, had installed it here. And, and you can get it in the in the U.S. App Store. And it has like four features. It has like mm-hmm. four icons. And then you, you go to China and you if you install it off of the Chinese App Store, uh, it's it's this way more robust platform that that you know has has a lot more utilities that you you know you see uh, my my Chinese coworkers using constantly. Yes, yeah, I feel like though I have um, WeChat Envy now, even for the more skeletal version that you describe. Um, since I was asked why I'm not on WeChat, but I'm really going to try and resist the urge to uh, to have any more logins and things to be posting to and communicating on regularly. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sending you my WeChat invite uh, oh, momentarily. No. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, we're kind of running up against time, and appreciate you kind of staying up so late to do this. So a couple lightning round quick ones from me. Uh, so as I'm envisioning you in this gala, it's, I'm kind of thinking of, it sounds almost like a European soccer stadium. Is that kind of, yes. you know, yes. so like a hundred thousand people live, is that kind of what, what we're dealing with? Um, you know, I wish I had a number for you on exactly how many people were there. I don't have a great sense of that, to be honest, but it was, it was like big and loud and, and all on. <laughs> yeah. So like giant stadium or more like MSG, what, what are we dealing with there? Um, I'd say more like MSG. Okay, I see. Uh, so probably more of an indoor arena kind of thing. And then yes, did they ever indoor. they ever tell you how big the audience was that was watching it on TV and or their mobile devices? Um, that's a good question. I might have to follow up with you on that for the show notes. I don't yeah. know the number offhand. Okay, because that's one of the things that always blows me away when I chat with all these folks in China. You're like, oh, how many people are on Alipay? And the last time I asked them, they're like, oh, 900 million active accounts. And you're just like, yeah. what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everything um, I, is is, you know mega hundreds of millions. Um, so I'd be surprised if it wasn't a huge number. Yes. I think the reason it's not jumping out at me is because it was almost like I became desensitized to all of these gigantic (laughs) numbers. Yeah. Because everything was mind blowing. Um, another kind of quick one. And and you were talking to that, that guy, um, who's in charge, presumably of this is, do you think Alibaba will ever open a marketplace in the U S they had that 11 main, a lot of reporters I talked to say, well, that was their effort in the U S and it didn't work out well. And I think they really misunderstood what that 11 main was. It was kind of a a hobby of one of the acquisitions they did a long time ago. Um, did you get any vibe that they're going to actually kind of jump in and compete with eBay and Amazon here? 
at all? Um, so, so one, just on 11 main, it's definitely my perception as well, based on what I know of Alibaba, that it was, it was not, not their, you know, real wholehearted, um, U S attempt. So I, I don't think we should say, oh, they did that and it didn't work and they're not equipped for the U S or they're not going to do anything else here. Um, that is definitely not my perception. That said in all of the conversations that I, that I've had with them and the Q and A's and things, it, my takeaway is that, and this is my opining a little bit, um, but my takeaway is that they are much more focused on, um, on Southeast Asia right now in terms of, of being in other markets. Um, and then they're also focused on bringing retailers, including those in the U.S., onto their platforms that are targeting the Chinese consumer and potentially others in Southeast Asia. Um, and then I would I I, sur- I do think that they will do something bigger in the U.S. Um, but but after some of the after they make headway on some of those other priorities. Got it. Um, last question, and, and you kind of hinted at this. So so Amazon hasn't really come up, and um, you know Amazon's invested a lot in China. They seem to have kind of moved on to India as their next big battleground. Did Amazon come up at all? Were they doing anything on Singles Day you heard about, or or even kind of their their T Mall store or anything like that? Honestly, I don't know if it's just because I spent so much time sort of with an Alibaba-focused crowd, um, but those, those may have been the um, the first two days in a very, very long time where I didn't hear about Amazon. <laughs> because yeah. in my normal life, working in retail and technology, as you both well know, um, you know, it's it's a lot of Amazon all the time. Um, but that was not a hot topic there. That said, um, and we we haven't really touched on this during this hour, um, but I do. I am just waiting waiting for there to be more buzz about Singles Day on U.S. soil, Um, because it does seem strange that there is this, you know, massive, massive Commerce Day that nobody would be trying to get more Americans shopping. Um, And so whether it's Amazon who decides, you know, they want to try and bring Singles Day and target a U.S. audience or whether Alibaba does it, um, I can definitely imagine that happening, you know, sooner rather than later. That's just kind of if, if I had a crystal ball, what, what I'm thinking about. Um, I do know, actually, that there is a, a site called Deal Moon in the U.S. that targets Chinese Americans. And they had um, a number of different U.S. retailers um, advertising and, and offering deals through that site. Um, so there is a little bit of that, I think, starting to bubble up, but I, for one, would expect more of it and, and could potentially see Amazon playing a role in that, especially since so many Chinese, um, since there are so many Chinese sellers on Amazon, on the Amazon marketplace. Got it. Wow. Well. Uh, Andre, it's not going to shock you, but it's happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of our listeners' times. So we re- certainly appreciate you taking time out of your uh, schedule, having just gotten home. We really appreciate you sharing your insights with our listeners. Anytime. Happy anniversary, guys. It was a pleasure to spend it with you. <laughs> well, you gave us exactly what we wanted. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks again, Andrea. And if... Um, if folks want to kind of follow you and your writing and pontification, where should they go? Um, they can go to my site, captaincustomer.com, or they can find me on Twitter at Andrea Wass, W-A-S-S. And I will put both of those in the show notes. So until next week, happy commercing. Happy commercing. Happy commercing.
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.